This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and welcome to the 44th episode of One Heat Minute. 44th of about 160-odd, I think. Um, and today I am joined by a seasoned veteran when it comes to film and television criticism. Um, you would recognize him if you've read Fairfax, um, but what I've what I've dived into recently is his Binger, which has got a great name because Binger um, uh, publication, which, uh, you know, that's anyone who's sitting at home and Netflix and binging the living daylights out of themselves um, may have and should have um, read the lovely Craig Matheson's blog. Craig Matheson, thank you so much for joining me on an episode of One Heat Minute. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Blake. Oh, no, go, sir. You go. No, 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 it's good. It's good. I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm in the talk. You know, I'm, I'm in the minute and I'm in the sort of, I'm in the zone. You're, you're in, oh, look, he is in the zone. And look, if you do right now, you know that we usually say some of this to the end, but um, Craig is at Sam Screens on Twitter. And if you just go to Craig's Twitter profile and you listen to this right now and you're in your headphones, you'll see that the lovely LA train in the distance in, I think, what is the first minute of heat. So 40... <laughs> Three episodes ago, is in the banner headline of his uh, his Twitter profile. So big, big respects to Craig. Before we jump into the minute, Craig, you're a fan, clearly. Oh, obviously, it's it's my favorite film. I, I like you. I probably couldn't count the times I've seen it, though. I haven't written a, uh, as much probably as as you did <laughs> academically. Um, yeah. But no, I've I've seen it uh, many times and thought about it um i'm pretty sure at, at sort of lower points in my life it was my tradition to watch it on christmas day by myself so been all up and down with heat over the years oh, up and down and you saw it you saw it in the theater when it first came out i saw i went to the media screening oh the Sydney. media screening wow i went to a day i think i saw it i saw it seven times in the initial cinema run um because i remember I, I read the screenplay um, that was back in the era when you could still surreptitiously or semi-covertly buy um, photocopied screenplays of films that hadn't gone into production yet. That's amazing. I still had. I, I had got the untitled screenplay by Michael Mann, revised three three ninety four, which I bought a couple of years before from a shop in Sydney. Oh my god. Um, which is a different version, you know. It's it's interesting to see how much I, I assume that was before other people might have pitched in a little bit, but it's it's a little more expansive. There's always a little bit more dialogue. You can. It's quite fascinating to read that and then see the scenes and how he's trim, 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 trim to yeah, get the sort of essence. Yeah, take it back, take it back. Less dialogue, less dialogue. That is amazing. It's so funny that you said that because Luke Doolan, Aussie film editor and Oscar-nominated short filmmaker, was on One Heat Minute on an upcoming episode, and he talked about having that experience too, buying the screenplay from overseas because he'd heard about this film, had it shipped over, read it, and then went and saw the film. And that's just like, that doesn't exist. I think there are some websites, like if you go to the, like the sort of trailblazing movie news websites like joeblow.com, I think used to have an entire section where you could download PDFs of whole scripts, but it really wasn't, I don't know, maybe that was just on the cusp of where I started to become a real rip-snorting film geek is like I missed that because I just, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to see in a cinema on a beautiful print and oh, it would have been absolutely gorgeous. Well, it was quite funny because, you know, the first media screening was, was a very mix of people. I remember I remember a, a more, an elder, older critic who, fine critic, but they were, you know, they just came out and they had this slightly shell-shocked look on their face afterwards and was muttering something about automatic weapons. And <laughs> you know, 
it was it was a very interesting experience. I mean, I don't think um, it's it's strange when you love a film so much. You, it, you, it's easy to forget that first experience almost because it, it's sort of because the film seeps into your body and your bones and your opinions, and then you forget the sh the the shock and the rush, and and in some cases the awe that you have in that very first screening when it's when it's washes over you so completely. It's really weird, right? Because I find that too on really incredible films it's almost you're almost like stunned into like an inarticulate mess like people go was it good and you go yes <laughs> you kind of go, yes or how good oh great yeah i'm glad i didn't i didn't take notes you know it, it would have yes. been, it would have been a strange experience taking notes it was it was i think i didn't write about it at the time it was only years later that i started writing about it so it was really just to take it in each time i, I saw it and i mean I think by the last time I saw it, I was in cinemas. The last time I saw it in cinemas, I think I was the only person in there. It was literally the Wednesday, I think. Yes. It was, it was going off off screening on, on that night. So it was almost dashing back in um, to sort of sit in a quite large cinema in, in George Street in Sydney to sort of see it one last time on, on the screen. That is amazing. Well, if that's not qualification enough for those people just listening... Um, you, you're going to get a sense of Craig's passion and love of the film. We're in a good, and I, this is the most overused thing that I say in this podcast. This is the torture of producing this podcast and then going back and listening to yourself. The, the most thing I think I've said in this is this is a good minute. And, but I genuinely mean that for, um, there's like, I don't think I say that about the big set piece minutes because they're just so jam packed and so dense, but I love these almost interstitial minutes um, where you don't really know what's quite going on and then things start to become illuminated. So in the previous minute, you guys might have listened to, hopefully you have, um, I've been talking to Travis Johnson, who's a film critic, and we brought us right to this moment where Neil McCauley is standing at a phone box. We don't exactly know why he's at that phone box, but very clearly because of the way that man begins to emphasize um, the fact that he's perhaps gazing on or looking on something or scoping something out, we're now... 43 minutes on the dial on the uh, theatrical cut of heat. Craig and I are going to watch this minute and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Yep. I got a package for you. There's a drive in on Sentinella, 2.30 tomorrow. Okay, just send one man alone. Nobody Listen, you're... He's a legit liquor wholesale sailor from Las Vegas. Alan Marciano. Chris is going to straighten it up with you. It's too late. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Shut up! Here's the deal. You will give Chris one last shot. After that, he fucks up. And that is the torture of this show, is that in some moments, it's been actually amazing how perfect some of these scenes have lined up to the exact minute the exact second so when you cut it off it's perfect but this one we're right in the we are right in the meat of a really great scene i still can't believe that ashley judd would go for hank azaria i just can't believe it craig that's just something that my suspension of disbelief just doesn't work no because shaheen chahurlis you, you know has played the odds and is a survivor yes and, and that's that's the thing that comes through in this scene is immediately the way that Charlene reads Neil and is very aware of Neil and reacts on different levels and different provocations and different responses almost immediately as if she, she's known power situations all her life and how to, how to survive them. You know, she's surviving Neil at that point and she's very aware of, of, of the danger she's in. You're so right. You go, let's, let's go. We, we, we don't usually do this again. It's another one of those, but we're going to go in reverses. The, you love that. He's who was that guy who, and he's starting to get really serious and he listens like, this is the amazing 
you know, performance and character that Ashley Judd does for Charlotte Chihelis. It's she's so strong. She's not she's not usually intimidated by him. And even though at his most heightened and aggressive, she she knows how to defuse the situation. Not he's a legitimate businessman. And at the end of the day, it's self preservation, right? It's so great. He's just like, who is this guy? I want to know everything about him. He can't be a crook because then I'm gonna get I'm, I'm gonna get done in. It's really interesting. If you listen, she says nobody three times before she folds. And each of the nobodies, there's a different tone and a different way she holds her voice, as in there's a defiant nobody. I think I think there's a almost a, a compassionate one. And and then there's a desperate one. And then she knows she has to fold. That she the only way is to be completely honest and, and to and to open up. And I you know, there's a whole world obviously of shared experience between them, clouded by Chris's involvement in their two very distinct lives um that, that obviously between them um you know I, because of chris i suppose in a way charlene charlene and, and neil are married almost yes because they're both married to chris yes and what's great is that they're both you know they're both caring for chris like he's a toddler so you've got dominic who she cares for every day and he does the same relationship with chris he's picking up after him and what's so great is just how it echoes into the previous scene where he's like has she got an hour on the side and he's like no 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 it doesn't and and so i love that that plagues in your mind when you watch the scene over and again he's like oh no he doesn't believe chris he knows that she's the one that if she's got the escape route she's got new zealand she's not she knows this guy's going to be bad news potentially so we've got to do something about this um it's yeah i i'm quite struck by um i'm quite struck by uh, some of the char- some of the character actors in this and obviously ashley judd is a you know a dynamite leading lady in her own right but who can really stand up in some of these insanely intense scenes across from a Pacino or across from a De Niro. Like in this film, he's probably at the peak of his powers in my opinion, and he just rips into that room. And it's so great. Like let's just like just to sort of fast forward through this scene, if you just go to, if I know that you guys might like to play along at home, but it's just so perfect and you can't know. I reckon on VHS, you probably never even saw that this happened. But you know, in in a cinema or on a beautiful Blu-ray print, you look at about forty-three minutes twenty-seven seconds. He just wheels the 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 trolley up to the window. It's just that effortless little little bit of uh, trick. Trickery. He's very good at getting into hotel rooms throughout this film. <laughs> into I must say. Um, but yeah, masterful improvisation. And then there's that, there's a, if you listen really carefully, when the door first, just before the door opens, when she's heading to the door and the shot's over her shoulder, the strings um, get a very, uh, hit a very menacing note. Yes. Just very quietly. And it's like, which is just the perfect sort of, the perfect introduction to that door being pulled open. And then he's just surging and she's instantly retreating, you know, like, 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 like it's on a it's on an atomic level. The atoms are sort of pushing each other forward and back instantly. I think the strings sound like it's so great. Like you said, it's menacing, but it's almost a it like it, it's like this pronounced inhale that we're about to see. Yeah, before the surge, it's like uh, bang, and you just sort those of strings, hit. The... Yeah, those strings are so often there. I mean, they're all, they're a constant. I think. Yeah. You know, it, it's there. It's their undulation and it's the way that it's their spikiness and their peaks and their dips that, that sort of inform them so well and, and, and sort of really catch what the characters are doing. But, I mean, you know, you look at Ashley Judd, as you were saying about, about great actors, you know, and I think that's one of the things that the director of Man's Calibre does is that they get stars to do smaller roles or they get people who are about to be stars to do smaller roles. Yes. And, you know... At the very end of this of the minute, you know, or the, I think as as the minute goes along, you know, the looks that she's giving Neil are not subservient. No. You know, it's, it's an agreement. You know, you know, as he, it's 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 an equation between the two of them, and that's that's really fascinating the way she holds herself, the tilt of her head, and I think it's also about how man makes throughout this film and a lot of his films, he'll he'll give great focus to the supporting player or even the bit player in the scene with the star. And just for a moment or a minute, the film is about them. And I think in this minute, in a lot of ways is about Charlene and it's, and it's incredibly telling about her just by how she reacts to Neil. And, and also you get the sense, um, 
you get the sense a little later that when, especially when the, when the gang's all out to their dinner and things like that, that a lot of the other wives have different degrees of intentional obliviousness about what their partners are doing. And what I love so much about Charlene and what I love about Ashley Judd in this performance, I think it's, you know, it's so, it's so amazing is she cuts through the BS and knows you put it perfectly. She knows the equation. The equation is I have to completely surrender. I'm going to try, I'm defiant, but I know that there's a certain level that's going to get me out of this situation safely. And as you said, she's done this. This is not her first rodeo at trying to defuse a, a potentially violent dude. And it just so happens that she's so intrinsically tied up with Neil now that, you know, she knows exactly what she's got to say to get, get herself out of trouble in a scene. So if you just go to 43 minutes, 30 seconds, she comes up, the strings swell, bang, she opens the door. And it's, it is great great physical choreography here because you just it should bang straight back and as you said maintaining eye contact maintaining eye contact and it's first one is i think craig put it perfectly guys if you're watching this is just a great scene if you're watching this scene again the first one is very nobody and the second one after the big he sort of flings and hits coat hangers because he's basically saying I mean business. And in that one, she gives it more nobody. And it looks like there's about to be a clash. And then she says, okay, no, it's this guy, Alan Marciano, legitimate businessman, according to what she knows, right? Well, yes, I must say, you know, some people think Mummy Dearest is the film with the scariest use of a coat hanger, but I I think you can make (laughs) a case for heat. Well, it is, it is. Do you think it's interesting in that in that script I have the earlier script he actually puts his hands on her just as a not to not hitting her but in a very forceful holding her face sort of way as in to to focus her face her her gaze on him so it's interesting that man took that back a step and you know Neil doesn't touch her but again is all the more threatening perhaps for not yeah. for holding himself back um, you know it's interesting because you know the, the famous speech about the heat is around the corner. For Charlene, Neil is the heat. <laughs> yes. She has to be ready for him to come around the corner at any point because she obviously is aware that what he will do for his crew includes, you know, in the end, if it has to be getting rid of her. So I think she's well aware that she, she could be collateral damage, you know, in this, in this sort of ongoing partnership between Chris and her husband. So what I'd say to you is I've, I've never once in any viewing thought you know some people are like do you think that he would he was going to hit her like as a character not like as the performer but he's like it was like if you thought that neil would would hit charlene and i just said it doesn't number one it never struck me as a thing that he would do like to hit her like to be physically abusive shoot her in the head if she betrayed him sure like let's just not let's not put too fine a point on it he would do that but i think you're so right about it's so much more in character for him to never have to touch her because he wouldn't want that trouble with Chris either. That's the issue. He would. He needs to know for the safety of the crew and if she's stupid enough to be with someone else, then he can frame that with Chris. And, and in fact, it feels more like something he'd make Chris do. He'd make Chris make the choice. You need to make the choice. Yes, and I, and I think he also wouldn't want to leave any sense of evidence no. um, and any trace that he was there. Um, you know, that, that that sort of spectral presence that he tries to exude across the film to, to be in places but not to be physically present, to, to have a, a sense of involvement but not to be known, I think is always at the back of his mind. So, you know, to scatter the, the coat hangers is, I think, is enough of a, of a clatter and a, and a, and a threat to, to, to establish what he wants, which is always to control knowledge and, and a sense of people being, in a, in a way, working to his plan, his many plans. Yes. And what's so great is I, I just... The, in, the, in the sort of signature scene, in the cafe scene, um, it's like a masterclass of acting and reacting and little ticks. And, and I love how you said that she tilts her head because it's, it's, it's all in that same vein to how do i mirror how do i massage all this like energy 
that's coming out. So when you sort of watch the scene, you know, she's she's looking at his finger, she's nodding, she's holding his eye contact. And then and then there's that moment that as the minute winds up, she's <laughs> when he says, Chris is gonna straighten out with you, it's like almost when it's when it's at that point, I think she loses herself. Like she realizes that oh he he doesn't he's not gonna kill me now. He's going to try and patch my relationship like a relationship counselor. And she just goes, it's too late. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. It's an ab- I'm sick of it is an absolute eruption when it comes. <laughs> yes. and, and, it's, and it's quietened almost immediately. And there's, and there's, there's this, a hint of regret that she's showing that to him, I think. Yes. It's, showing it's, that, yeah. it's literally on the still that I've got right now. So if, you, if you're listening, 43 minutes, 53 seconds. And the look on Ashley Judd's face, it is not... It's not one of like intimidation. It's one of, you know, shit. I've gone and said something that I really didn't want to say on her face. Like she's, she's almost looking, she's looking down past Neil. It's one of the rare moments in the, in this sort of real um, sort of flux of a scene that's happening right now, a clash of bodies, you know, lots of intent. And she just looks to the side like, God damn it. Why did I have to say that? Why did I have to surrender that? Cause it, that's the only way that's going to keep this, uh, this little criminal ecosystem balanced if i if i agree with neil here right yeah i think i think there's a sense that by by that little eruption shows him that she's she's doing it all under duress yeah you know with with chris it's under neil's duress and you know that changes his opinion of her in a way and how he values her and how he values her to chris's work in the crew so i think she does realize she slipped up there um so, you know, it, it changes. It changes how he looks at her. I mean, I, you know, she escapes in one way from him, as we know. But, you know, in another way, I mean, no one in this film can quite escape anyone. So, I think, I think she knows at that point that she's sort of tied herself to a to a very dangerous path. And I think, you know, this is the frustration because there's such a an amazing, and you know, we can't not talk about it. But that's what's so wonderful about the negotiation, right? It starts with all this hostility. And she's like, I'm sick of it. It's not going to happen. And then he has to, he becomes the negotiator. It goes from complete hostility to, all right, here's the deal. This is the negotiation. Here's the deal. If he messes up one more time, if he fucks up one more time, I'll set you up myself. My money. Don't worry about him. I know what, (laughs) you don't have to tell me his monetary situation. I know it. And so it's, that's like in one not even what it'll end up being. I think it's about, um, I think it's about forty-five to fifty seconds. I think spanning over these two minutes, is you just get that complete final. It's it's done. You go from hostility, surge, swelling stuff, and then he has to negotiate with her. And that's why I think she's just such an amazing powerhouse figure in this movie. Because who's Neil negotiating with at any other point in this movie? No one. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, and and um, I was going to say, uh, you know, and Neil knows what she wants. You know, it's Neil who says Dominic, who brings Dominic into the yeah. into the the the, uh, the pricing of it all. You know, he knows that's what matters to her, and he knows that's what that's how Chris would try and hurt her by depriving her of her son. And he instantly attaches that to their to their negotiation um, to show to show Charlene that that he knows what she wants and what she what she values and and why it's important for her to give him what he needs in the coming weeks let's go back because i think i want to jump onto a little morsel that you left us when we were talking earlier and in the episode you said you talked about marciano is charlene's backup plan like she's like that that's so great because that's you know i hadn't thought of it about just a contingency the contingency level of it because you know she might have had some interest. Of course, she's beautiful. Like, there's no question. Um, and very, very strong and attractive. So you would you can imagine that people would be after her. But it's like, oh, if I just keep this guy on a string, I'm not... It's okay. Like, oh, if Chris really does go down this garden path and goes crazy, I've got a backup plan and that's okay. And, and seeking out someone who's legitimate, you know... <laughs> bloody Hank Azaria, unreliable Hank Azaria. Um, how dare you? But uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I really like that too. Um, now, 
because we've loaded the back end of this minute. What have we have we have we missed anything here before we sort of head back to the start and start? Uh... What I'd, what's interesting about Marciano is that he's from Vegas. Now you remember that um, Chris tells Neil that Vegas tapped him out. Yes, he's broke because of Vegas in the Super Bowl, which always made me think. Well, while Chris was making some incredibly stupid wages in <laughs> Vegas, was that where Charlene? Yeah, Marciano, and I, I also think that perhaps she doesn't want. Uh, Marciano to be fully legitimate because being part of a fallback plan also means that he needs skills or assets or access to people who have them that are, that are illegal. Yes. Because if she's on the run from Chris at some point, which is probably across her mind, because probably not the first time in her life she's been on the run, um, then Marciano is, is an interesting so is an interesting backup plan because you know does she know. As, as we later learn, that, that he has his own history and can she sense that or, or sniff that out or get a sense that he has those connections that would make him valuable, not just on the financial supportive side, but on the physical safety side or, or you know, those kind of things. So, you know... And he does play like, that up. I think you're pretty spot on there. I think that's a, that's a strong enough theory because... He plays it up with a lack of just a sheer lack of intimidation of Vincent. That's what I love is so completely different about Australian and American crime. Anything is that an Australian, if a cop's in the room, is like, "Oh shit, what have I like? Oh, was it where I parked? Or was it that person I stuck my finger up at on the way to work? Or whatever it may be." Um, there's that instant. I don't know whether it's like deep-seated colonial instinct of like, "Oh god, I've done something wrong." Especially any of us who've you know with European background, but you then get Americans who seem so defiant. If you watch Years of Law and Order, it's like that. But he seems even more defiant. It's that these cops from LA come along and Vincent is at his absolute Vincent best in the, the forthcoming scenes. And he's just like, you know, you got no jurisdiction here. And you just think, what? wow, that's your first reaction to this dynamo? Is You're just going to dismiss that he's out of jurisdiction and you can just shut up? I don't care if you've got anything on me? I think his background is New Jersey, isn't it? Isn't that where yeah. the outstanding one's from? So I always assumed he, he was he was you know in some way hooked up to you know that whole Goodfellow culture, New Jersey. Yes, Alan Piano, Italian American. So I always assumed that he had a, a history in that sort of in that world where where you front very strongly, and you're sort of you know that whole old strata of Goodfellas pedigree <laughs> of how you you take your first pinch and. Look, casinos right around this time. They were New Jersey boys that moved off to the lovely, uh, the lovely Vegas uh, desert to make their fortune. So it totally makes sense. It's it seems like a backstory that Michael Mann would have given to Hank Azaria, and you can imagine Hank Azaria going, "Okay, cool. Like, I don't. Why do I need this?" And he's like, "No, I wrote this forty-page backstory for you." Um, And here's the guys in real life whose names you can't repeat. Who are you going to go and sit with? Sit with at drinks and just watch how they move and how they talk to the cocktail waitress and how they dish out the money and all those things. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we all know that De Niro went to prison literally for yeah. this and it was the first time in years he'd done such immersive research. And I, I can also imagine that there were so many connections that people had that, that man just set up for them or, you know, biographies, yeah. people, all that sort of well, stuff. Judd was interviewing prison wives some of them mm-hmm. whom had suffered from domestic violence. De Niro was visiting prison. You know, Pacino's, you know, with an FBI profiler. De Niro and the crew are at such high level, you know, because who was it? Is it, um, oh, my God, I've just, it was Andy McNabb, who's the weapons advisor on this movie. It's an author. I, I might have, I might mm-hmm. have that wrong. The SAS guy. Yeah, the SAS guy. Yep. He's, he's the weapons advisor, so good that, Every military friend that I have talks with sort of masturbatory admiration for Krisha Healis's changing of a magazine in this in this heist. You know, it's just crazy. My two favorites, are, my two favorite other ones with man, just on that. Uh, the Tom for, for folks, there's a great spe- special feature on the Collateral DVD of dressing Tom Cruise up as a courier and making him sneak into the back of restaurants and hotels just unassuming so that people didn't even know that he was there. That's what he kind of, you know, a lover you described as a spectral because that's exactly the same ethos as the Neil, even the, the, the attire, it's all very Neil McCauley. And, you know, Muhammad Ali trained for 13 months before a frame was shot of Ali. 
every day, cutting weight, road work, pads in the in the gym. He's a he's a maniac. But this is why his films turn out like this and they're so rich and we can sit here for a minute. And mm. we haven't even gone back to the first <laughs> ten seconds. It's why the actors you know, it's why the actors want to do it. It's 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 you know, it's why Chris Hemsworth wants to come off, you know, Marvel films and he wants to redefine himself, you know, by doing black hat. You yes. Know, it's they want to reach, they want to reach really high, you know, and they want to be pushed and, and they want that experience, you know, and I, um, I can, you know, it's, it also just makes you hope and hope that he just keeps, 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 keeps to get, make, keeps making films because it just, you know, it gets harder for man. It gets harder in all kinds of levels to keep making films at that budget he works at. So you, you just got to keep hoping that that connection keeps getting made with actors, which pushes the films out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, you know, what, in this peak period, kind of 90, 92 through to, you know, 2001 or whatever, it was Mohicans Heat Insider. You know, at, at, after those three, he would have had no trouble walking into any studio after all of the critical and, and, you know, and financial sort of backing of those movies and, you know... Um, yeah, to to keep making them, but it's it's funny he's kind of disappeared a little bit off the off the map, but but I th- he was lured back to TV for a bit, you know. He did uh, Luck, which looked like it was going to be so fantastic again. Dustin Hoffman, Nick Nolte, holy shamoli, you know, set at horse racing, gambling. Um, uh, David Milch, putting those two together, talk about a wet dream. The guy who made Deadwood and Heat working together, holy shamoli, um, for fans of um, both Craig and I smiling even talking about it. So yeah, you you know, there's those sorts of things. It's funny that, you know, why he would choose to go back. But let's, speaking of going back, before we get to the very end of this minute, we're nearly there. Let's go back to the beginning, which is, he's, Neil's waiting for a, a secondary, he's waiting for a second call. He's just had a couple of seconds on the phone to Roger Van Zandt, played by the lovely um, William Fickner. And then he gets a call from Henry Rollins on the phone here. And what I love about this scene um, is that even though, so speaking later, even though we know that Neil's going up to this exchange and it looks like he's got no one around, he has got a secondary car. Michael's there with a shotgun. Chris is like waiting on a roof, scouting with a rifle. Um, he's heavily armed, and but in this moment, it's just a great sort of sleight of hand that makes you think, oh, for a half second, that Neil McCall is not prepared. He is way more focused for the first even 15 seconds. It feels like he's barely even listening to the conversation. He's scouting out Charlene and Alan Marciano in this room, and he couldn't, sound like he couldn't care less what's happening on that phone. He's a very good multitasker. Um, <laughs> Way better than me. <laughs> I, I, I always assume that he assumes, Neil assumes, that something will go wrong. So he's he's not that interested in what he's hearing because to him, it, he's being lied, he assumes he's being lied to. Mm. He's assumed the worst, perhaps, or he's assumed what the angles tell him would be the more devious play, which he prepares for. So... To him, it's it's not like he, I'm going to hear anything that matters. I'm just going to get a location, and then I work from there. Yes. So, it's and it's, it's, it's no that, matter no matter what's going to be said there. I'm going to have a guy that's got a rifle that's scoping out to for the, for the play. I'm going to have them scope it out. Yeah, it's it's like he's it gets that sense of the life because you you sense that he's had in a way as 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 contained as he is. There's no optimism in no. Neil. In a way, he has those dreams. I know mean, you talked about, you know, with Manola Dargis about the the escape to Fiji and the fantasy sort of idea of, of the the iridescent blue. Um, but you know, you also get a sense that anything in his life that maybe a childhood hope or anything has been destroyed in it, and he he is always prepared for the worst, and he is in a way, you know, as as the needle starting at zero, um, he's prepared for the worst mm. and and that he can make the equation of if the worst is too bad, then it obliterates me or I, I am defeated and I accept that. So it's, it's that sort of, you know, it's that flashback to that, that world of French gangster films, 50s and 60s, which I think man has that um, 
has a sort of sense of roots in. And, you know, it's always watching Neil, I'm always reminded at, at the older I get about how optimism changes in your life. And I think he, obviously he's an accelerated <laughs> fictional example of that. But, you know, he's, he's someone who as much as they're in control has also accepted that it can all end yeah. immediately. And he'll, he'll work around that and he'll work against it. But at the same time, it's, 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 it's quite chilling. Um, and De Niro makes power very cold and alarming and menacing in heat. And which again, I suppose is why we, we all react so strongly to Edie scenes with Neil, because it's such a flip side. It's that ray of light hitting a very icy surface after a long time. And this is the wrestle that I have. And I don't, I don't think I'm going to get an answer short of, you know, and I, and I don't actually think that Michael Mann and Amy Brenneman and even Robert De Niro would even be on the same page of what the answer is. But I think when I look at Neil McCauley and I look at Edie, I always think, is he lying? Is he lying to himself? Like, I feel like he really, he's going against all of his instincts with Edie. And that's good because actually exactly like you said, it it feels like it's sunshine casting on like a, a glacier that's never even had, and, and, and we're seeing the creaking happen, you know, we're seeing movement for a time in something that's so ice cold. But in those, in those quiet moments, and I don't know whether it's just the depth of De Niro's performance because it's just so tremendous just how he's processing information in his face or reflecting on things. I just wonder, even when he looks at Edie while she's sleeping, it's not menacing. It's just like, God, this is a lovely fantasy that I'm living out on the side and the fringes of my life right now. And I think that for me, that's the way that I read it only because I've you watch Justine and, and Vincent like literally call each other on the fantasy that they're both trying to live out like oh yeah we're in the third marriage we're like honeymoon it's gonna be great no it's not it's gonna end badly i'm taking 45 xanaxes a day you're never home and when you are home we're having sex or you won't talk to me you know it's it's it feels like they're both their their relationships in weird on that same weird spectrum uh both fantasy land but again it's just so great well the interesting thing is perhaps neil Instead, if he can't open himself up, perhaps he has a, a speck of optimism in that he believes that maybe he can keep Chris and Charlene together. Maybe for him, that's a form of satisfaction yeah, that he great. can keep them together. Maybe maybe he gives her that little bit of ground that he gives her because there's a tint of vulnerability in him because you know whether he, he thinks about Dominic or he thinks about Chris or he thinks about Charlene, maybe he looks at them and says, well, I can't have that. So maybe I can preserve it for them. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, any time he thinks like that, he does open himself up a little bit. But and, and you're also- right, because that's around the table. He's looking at the families. He's looking at Michael, Paul Clueless, Tom Sizemore, Michael Torita, like they're, you know, living, <laughs> living flashy, you know, asking for trouble and, and Treo with his partner and then, you know, Chris and Charlene and, he looks around that table and he sees the smiling faces and he sees the cute kids asking the cute questions and, you know, don't ask him where he got it with the diamond ring. And you're exactly right. It's in that moment where he's like, shit, like I'm cultivating this little, this little patch, this little, you know, this little crew, this little family. And, um, I can't take any of it for myself cause I've got to be the guardian or whatever in his own head. That's how he's pitching it to himself. But then, yeah, there is a glimpse like, Oh, you know, maybe Edie is the one. Maybe she is that one that's so different to me that we can make this work. It's it's great. And but yeah, this is what's so funny about like even this scene. Like the, you look at forty three minutes twelve seconds is where I've paused it. And Ashley Judd just so vibrant and gorgeous. And Hank Azaria's suit just looks oversized. He looks like looks looks like hell. She looks amazing. You know, a little kiss. And, you know, he sort of walks away. He's, you know, trying to act a bit cool. Doesn't and really... she, of course, she plays him off with the little um, little touch of her chin, I think, to, to, to signify his stubble. And, yeah. Which is a great sort of, it's a power move on her, on her, you know, on her, on her behalf and a, and a way of sort of keeping him thinking about her. It's, um, 
you know, it's masterfully played. I think, um, you know, the, again, it's another one of those things that shows you the depth of Charlene and, and what, she, what she can do, what, you know, as she puts her mind to, to change things. And then I just, you just love, it's like, this is where, this is where you, this is where you're figuratively putting the kettle on inside Neil McCauley, like before you're about to watch it go off here is, he's just watching and he's, he's, he's frustrated and you can even, there's a, just a quick flutter across his glasses here where the reflectiveness sort of goes away just for a second. It might be a car going past or something like that and you get to see his eyes and, you know, goddamn De Niro's just got those. Oh, he can dial up the intensity, and he looks not very happy. And then we get up into the room again. God, this is so good. This minute, so good. So much stuff going on. This, these little scenes, I think, you know, take away all the flash from this movie. This is where the. This is where you tell that it's a masterpiece because in these things, these are the ones that start to pop and shine and be memorable. You start to think, God, how funny are that coat hangers? I wonder whether he was going to touch it. Um, yeah, it's, it's in a hundred and seventy minute movie. I think you'd have to be incredibly um, in this hundred and seventy minute movie. You'd have to be incredibly tough to even pick five minutes that you would happily cut. You know, most hundred and seventy minute movies, you can make the call quite easily. But you <laughs> you could cut an hour from most. Craig, you know, <laughs> you're a TV critic as well, man. You know what it's like. You watch these things and you're like, God damn it, twelve episodes. That could have been eight, easy. Not mm. even. You shave the whole characters. See ya. That's it's done. Everything's interconnected in heat, and it's interconnected emotionally, and it's interconnected logically, and it's interconnected in terms of the plot. And, and, you know, it's all those pivots. I mean, this is a great pivot scene because it, it changes your perception of characters. It sets them on different paths. And, and it's done. It's done in the minute we're talking about. And, you know, neither of the, neither of the characters involved, you, you, have, you don't have the same perception for either of them after this one minute. No. And that's what keeps happening in the film. And, it's that, and that deepens and it keeps deepening. And it goes deeper and deeper, and that and that's that's where tragedy builds because you understand more and more, and you see that characters can forgive themselves less and less, yeah. and that's how and that's how it builds to an almost operatic level. And what I love you said there is, and then in what is, I don't I wouldn't call it a throwaway scene, but it's quite nice. It's like you you're sort of sitting in the restaurant after the menace, so the guys get serious. The restaurant scene plays with so much more complexity, I think, now because even when you're in the back and you see the, you know, the fallout from the Van Sant deal, and then you see Neil appraising the situation, and you see Chris and Charlene all buddy buddy. It's just like, oh, you know, she's just as much of a pro as these guys are who were just threatening to kill someone out the back. She's just had this interaction happen this morning, and she's just totally cool absolutely fine with you know going back to normal and putting on putting on the brave face so to speak it's it's so cool how that all plays out yeah it's it's you're always you're always thinking that you know what's happening in heat and you know what they're thinking and you don't because (laughs) because on a plot level you don't but also what you come to understand is that you haven't you can't perhaps and, and perhaps this is a good thing. We can't look at the decisions they make from from their moral viewpoint or their the lack of moral viewpoint that they make them from. Um, you know, it's a really, and I think it goes back to those French gangster films of that sense of of who you are and, and how you deal with things. And you know, I mean, really, how do you deal with with your friend and partner's wife who was cheating on him? I mean, that's. It's, it's a sort of a you know, that's a drama, and then it's and then here it is in the midst of this crime epic, and it and it totally changes the way you look at it. Because and, hier- and hier- it, hier- I love that you said that because hierarchically to these guys, professional the job professionalism is all that matters. Morality is secondary, and that's what's so cool about those. Um, in a much more sort of overt um, existential crisis kind of way that happened in post-World War II in France is like that's what those gangster movies are about because they don't care. Like if my life is so 
meaningless and war and that most of my people have died, then I'm just going to do something that is fulfilling. And that's what's sort of thrill, thrilling about those those films as well is because and what they're drawn from and all of those great films that sort of then fed into, you know, biosmosis, fed from France into sort of those great new Hollywood films, which is where man started making films is, um, you know, Cassavetes onwards basically. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. That it's, it's so funny because you're like, it's like there's the drama, but that's a, that's secondary to these guys just need to be good at their job. And part of her job as a crime housewife is to just, it's like water off a duck's back, right? She just has to be mm. there, diffuse the bomb that's Neil, and then move on. Mm. It's interesting because you know the, the moral decision that always crops up for people is is the moment when Wayne Grow has killed the first security guard mm. on on the armored car heist, and Neil just nods. To Chris to kill to kill the third one. Mm. I think it's Chris. Um, you know because two are dead. Why leave a living one? But you know that's that's just the over moral equivalence. <laughs> yeah. of the, you know there's so much happening in, in in so many other scenes on a personal level where where their morality sort of comes through and you know then it gets back to the whole point of you know is it heroic or not or. Or you know, what do we admire? You know, which I think everyone answers on their own individual level. But you know, the more the more you open these characters up, the the more that they are three dimensional. The more that they ask really uncomfortable questions of each other and 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 the people watching the film. And I think that's the most interesting thing about people who dive further into heat. I think is that you know some some films that attract attract people who watch it a lot, and it's a very mechanical experience. They want to break it. They want to break down, you know, the filmmaking and and almost. But with Heat, when I think you dive deeper into it, what you you're actually opening yourself up to really interesting questions about who you are and how you react to situations and how people react at their best and worst and what we're capable of and and there's a whole, you know, there's a there's a universe in Heat of 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 morality and, and decisions that is, is sort of quite spectacular and quite daunting when you, when you sort of finally see it, I think around you when it's, when it's, or you're in it. This is why that every time I watch the end, it floors me so significantly. I think that now that's the crescendo every time becomes less and less about those two guys and way more about me. <laughs> and I think way more about anyone who's watching it because you're just there and you're in it and it's it's like cuts through the barrier of what is empathetic anymore and you know great films are you know empathy machines as the lovely Roger Ebert used to say but you know it's I think it's like when you can deeply not only empathize but sympathize with every character's point of view and even just in the passing minutes Donald Breeden you know Dennis Haysbert he just flies by and he becomes like a tragic hero all in and of himself you know I think that's what's so amazing. I mean, Craig, you're a guy who's what, you know, you're an experienced critic and commentator and what is it about this movie like? I don't, I don't know. I just, I, I want to ask you because I know that you're a guy who's watched so many things and so much TV and so many things and you would see things and themes and characters and, 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 and attempts to replicate, you know, big classic movies. Oh, this is the next Godfather. Oh, this is the next this. And in television terms, it's the next Sopranos. It's the next Wire. You, know, you get those sort of, it's the next Deadwood. Um, you get those sort of allegories all the time or comparisons. Um, what is it about Heat that just seems to... And I haven't seen Den of Thieves yet, so I've been told I need to. Have you seen it? Oh, the Lego Heat movie? <laughs> no, I haven't. Is that what it is? Well, that's perfect. It's, it's blocky and silly, so, <laughs> and it's based on Heat, so... <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That's you Put that on a poster, whoever made that flick. But, um, yeah, look, I haven't seen it, but what... I, I don't know, like, they're so weird that there's so many... Some movies, I think, despite attempts at imitation, can sort of fundamentally defy it like what have you seen in i don't know what have you seen or what have you seen in the main pratfalls in these movies that attempt to be heat but just aren't oh i, I think they're, they're trying to be heat on a on a technical level or on a on a plot level um but you can't you can't match man shot for shot no. you know this this is a filmmaker who truly believes and manages to encapsulate you know, great emotion in the way he moves the camera, 
in the sense of momentum he creates. You know, when when things are happening in heat, when it's when the film is moving, it's it's not just moving as plot; it's moving as a kind of as as a, as in a term, in a form of soulfulness. So you can't you can't duplicate that. And you know, his technical mastery. There are a lot of there. Are, there have always been technically masterful filmmakers, but the ones who can put that in service of something, in service of a code or a sense of belief, and and you know, as you know, when you watch man's films, there's obviously a sense of how he views other people and how he views his characters and all these kinds of things, and that's just incredibly well articulated in Heat. So when you when you put that together and then you put it on a mythic level and a very intimate level. So it, it sort of resonates in really powerful ways as a, as a collision almost of, of what we think of America, what we think of American crime films, what we think of, of L.A. And, and what we then think of them as individuals. It, it just sort of it evokes the feelings that let us talk at great length about <laughs> one minute of <laughs> Oh, well, look, I couldn't, I couldn't, fi- I couldn't ask to finish this episode any, any better. But Craig, I have to ask first because I do this. I appreciate great guests who I've had such a blast talking to to come back on the show to talk about another minute. Will you come back? Not about for, not necessarily the next minute, but could we ask you to come back and join us again for another minute of heat to gush, to talk more? Absolutely. I mean, it was interesting when you first asked me. I had no, I had no, I, we had no discussion about what minute. And I had no requests because I realized it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what minute you nominate. It will, there is, there is so much there, you know, and looking ahead, I, you know, I can be, again, I can't, whether it's the hundredth minute, 140th minute, um, there's, there's no, there's no dead moment in this film that I'm going to be handicapped by talking about. So, you know, yes, I, I will, I will be back. I mean, I know people are queuing up for, for certain uh, sequences, but, um, you know, I'm happy to do any of it. Guys, Craig Matheson, as I said, Binger, you would have seen his stuff in Fairfax. He's a TV critic and film critic at CM Screens on Twitter. Is there anywhere else, Craig, that you want to direct the guys before we wrap this up? Oh, I'll just, I would just say Binger is, um, you know, www.binger.com.au if you're interested in, in streaming television. Awesome. Guys, I couldn't have put it better. This is why I... This is what... My deep love of heat has uh, is and has made me discover and reach out great people who love heat too. And it's like you can't understand. I must be like someone going to a comic con and like seeing someone dressed as the same movie character as them. And just it's like everywhere I go, these are my people. And so this has been such a great pleasure to talk to Craig. Thank you. You put it right. We there is literally not a dull minute for the next 120 to 30-odd minutes that you guys have got coming into this show. We've got some great guests coming up. Craig, as he said, will come back. Um, I've been Blake Howard. Thank you guys so much um, for supporting One Heat Minute, subscribing, rating, reviewing. Um, If you want to know anything about the show, it's oneheatminute.com. If you want to... Uh, you can jump onto the socials onto our Facebook if you like. You can even mail us through a voicemail because, uh, you know, we've got voice memos now. We'd love if you've got a tidbit, if you've got something that you desperately want to say, send us a voicemail and we'll shout it out on the show. But thank you so much. Craig, thank you to Garth Franklin for our web design, Paul Davies for our music. Thank you all and we'll catch you in the next minute. Thanks, Craig. I've loved it. Thank you, Blake.